0: Hi and welcome to Super Anti-Aging Podcast, this is Steve Halpern, if you're a regular listener, I haven't had a new one up in a while given the holidays, uh, welcome and I guess I owe you some (laughs) new information and if you're a new listener, welcome, as my regular listeners know, I've been studying nutrition over 40 years, I really do live this. I spend a lot of time uh, consulting with a medical doctor, Dr. Polin Liss, on the latest medical nutrition information. I listen to podcasts, I read books, I read magazines, I read blogs, and I try and keep up. Hi and welcome to Super Anti Aging Podcast. This is Steve Halpern. If you're a regular listener, great. <laughs> if you're a new listener, welcome. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you the latest scientific health and nutrition information so you can live a long and healthy life. I spend hours and hours a week reading. New studies, going through journals, listening to podcasts, reading blogs, watching YouTubes, sharing with my good friend Dr. Pony the list about her experiences, her in-the-field experiences, and then I try and formulate all this and bring you this information in a concise and understanding way. So let's get into it. You know, I was watching a YouTube. It was a YouTube, and it was all about mono, mono, <coughs> MSG, monosodium glutamate, and how it was just really—it was a conspiracy. Even though this doctor in 1964 wrote a uh, letter to the American Milk Association about the, he called it the Chinese Restaurant Syndrome. It was poo-pooed, and even now, they say this controversy. So I listened carefully, as there was a lot of mixed-up information. All that uh, it's in food. Well, it's not. MSG is added to food, but it doesn't occur. Na- Monosodium glutamate does not occur naturally in foods. Glutamic acid occurs in food, and that's an uh, uh, it's an amino acid the body has experience with. But anytime you take a substance that the body does not have experience with, a little concern. And so, monosodium glutamate has been reported in many studies that I looked at as a toxic compound, even in small amounts. So why the misinformation? Well, in my humble opinion, it's because the huge Japanese pharmaceutical company that has the patent on it does not want negative information about MSG. And neither does the food industry because it's a great way of making bad tasting food taste good. I mean, originally... After its discovery, it was used in rations by the Japanese army. And one day, American soldiers found it because their rations tasted terrible and sent it to the scientists in the American army and they found MSG. And it said, is a great idea. And suddenly, the terrible American rations tasted good. Often, MSG is hidden in foods by just saying, flavorings, don't list it, and you go into restaurants, especially diners and uh, places where there aren't really great chefs and cooks, they're going to use the MSG, because it brings out the flavor in food, but it's an exotoxin, and then I started remembering remember that, there was a book years ago by a neuro- Surgeon Dr. Jeffrey Blaylock, and he documented all the effects of it being an exotoxin and how it can affect the nervous system and possibly uh, women, pregnant women. But you know, it, it's wonderful, and again, in my opinion, how you can manipulate the information. Remember, one time smoking was considered good, <laughs> yeah doctors smell camels because it's soothing to the throat and scientists were hired by the tobacco industry and in another case the issue of sugar being an issue and a cause of many uh, health conditions, negative health conditions and the head of nutrition Dr. Yitkin in England started publishing uh, research. And wrote a book, and boy, he was out of a job. Now, what was the food industry going to do in response to negative findings on sugar? Well, they just hired Dr. Frederick Steer, a famous nutritionist, PhD nutritionist. Uh, I forget, he was... uh, Oh, I think a famous college. Maybe it was uh, John Hopkins or some, you know, really placed high in the nutrition field. And then all the studies came out that sugar wasn't a problem. Excess sugar wasn't a cause of obesity. It wasn't a cause of diabetes. So science can be manipulated and bought. And, uh, you know, you can think about what's going on now today, you know. Oh, the scientists say this, you know, in the crisis we're currently in. The scientists say this about that, and the scientists say this about that. And then often you'll see a news release or a study that says, meta-analysis has shown. Well, a meta-analysis, to my knowledge, is only a review of studies. And often they handpick studies to come to certain conclusions. And they say, well, 20% of the studies showed this, and somebody showed this. Well, bad studies are bad studies. <laughs> and if something's not studied, it's not going to be there. So that's another way of, you know, it's not a brand new, you know, double blind, placebo controlled. Study. It's a review of studies. Some were double blind, and they review those. Some are animal studies. Some are, you know, mouse studies, fly studies, whatever. Okay. Now it's a little bit off topic, but I'll 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 get into the nutrients and uh, some of the latest information that's come out. But something I think that's important to discuss, and it's called our respect for scientists, and as i sh- As I said previously, with Dr. Frederick Stair and uh, Dr. Yudkin and the smoke industry, and they had to have the American Health Foundation, a non profit institution with some really good scientists to f- prove prove that smoking was really bad after scientists said it was okay. so you're a scientist. where are you going to work well can work for a university with certain rules and guidelines of what you can pick and choose. And if you come up with something, it's almost always uh, patented by the university. So there's not much to gain, and often you don't make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. That's the university. Well, you figure your research should be a little objective but then you're competing with all the other scientists to get grants to support your work well you better come up with something that's palatable to get a grant and all the other scientists are competing for these grants and often it's political it's often who you know so what's the next scientific way of going University, or um, you can work for a pharmaceutical company where again what you do is going to be controlled, you really don't have great academic freedom. And uh, but you're a scientist now, so you have to be you know, we have to respect what you say because you're a scientist. So we have the pharmaceutical and Some government stuff, you know, going on, hopefully, and NIH and uh, and, uh, U.S. Army developed stuff. And, you know, there's probably some uh, more open research. And then the next place is private industry and startup companies. Lots of startup pharmaceutical companies that are willing to go out of the box. And hopefully if they come up with something, it will uh, be bought out. By a big pharmaceutical company. So the science isn't pure. And so you have to be uh, very diligent when looking at the so called science. And boy, we've heard this from the beginning of COVID. Oh, the scientists tell us this. Oh, now the scientists tell us this. So what, what, and many of them are not physicians who have worked with patients. So I think the whole idea of functional medicine functional medicine where doctors really start to look at function you know in the old days, most doctors many doctors were scientists, some even had their own laboratories and so they come up with something and then they have a practical way of seeing what worked with patients I mean, if you think about it, Chinese medicine was experiential right it, didn't have you know they didn't work on mice and rats you know they worked on people and it was function took this herb they got better ayurvedic the same thing they took it they got better they didn't they died not so good and so you know i think trusting doctors who are willing to experiment but it's not part of the way medicine is so we leave the experiments to the scientists. Big dilemma. And we often uh, castigate and, and handcuff uh, physicians. You know, often they can't, you know, they have a problem prescribing off label of a medication, a medication that wasn't designed for one condition, they're going to use it for something else, depending on the laws in their state, malpractice laws, and 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 getting reimbursement by insurance. Insurance does not pay for experimental doctor work. Hmm. Think about that. They'll only do work that's been approved. So where does innovation come from? Innovation in medicine. So that's my little, uh, you know, political rant. You know, on the nutrition piece... Uh, i still think one of the great developments out of uh, this has been covid has been virtual medicine so people can you know uh, see doctors out of state and uh, sort of do some self-experimentation many times these doctors will prescribe you know out-of-box things people are getting a uh, uh, virtual uh, you know uh, consulting getting rapamycin a uh, interesting anti-aging drug and a few other interesting anti-aging compounds or oh, low-dose naltrexone now that's something really fascinating i i learned about naltrexone many many years ago even though i'm too young to have many many years ago There was a dr bahari in new york and it was during the aids crisis and many aids patients were also getting Kaposki syndrome like a skin cancer And there's a drug, naltrexone, which normally in high doses, comparatively high doses, is used for withdrawal symptoms from um, opiates and narcotics. And in fact, there's a fast-acting naltrexone to bring someone out of a, a coma when they're overdosed. But then... There were some rumblings that low-dose... And, and he got some interesting results. It wasn't the super dramatic that you would expect as a cancer compound. And it really didn't change AIDS patients. But there seemed to be some uh, side benefit in uh, in opiate withdrawal and the symptoms. But then people started experimenting, I guess, I don't know who, with low-dose naltrexone. Now, low down naltrexone is interesting because what it seems to do, it blocks, well, it's anti-inflammatory in low-dose. and At the same time, it blocks endorphins, you know, those pleasure chemicals that make you feel good, you know, run as high as you get. And often, what people get when they do a substance, an opiate substance, and that's why it works, but then at this low-dose, As the low dose wears off, you get a boost in endorphins. And so there's been, even though because it's an off-label, it it has to be compounded. It's mostly feedback you get from practitioners and from patients. And people have had all sorts of interesting benefits in autoimmune conditions and mood disorders and inflammation. And there's a foundation... Uh, um, that you can look up, the Naltrexone Foundation, and they're supporting uh, research and connecting people. So I think Naltrexone might be really interesting, um, especially since we're dealing with so many uh, autoimmune conditions now, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, it's something that I certainly if I had post-COVID, or what they call the long-haul uh, s- symptoms, I might look at low-dose naltrexone. And possibly rapamycin. You know, rapamycin uh, was found on Easter Island and it affects uh, there's some trials going on, independent trials going on on rapamycin, it's an anti-aging drug. It normally is used for immunosuppression um, in uh, Transplants. Oh, by the way, mentioning transplants, the news release I read the other day: they genetically uh, modified in a pig a heart to be used in humans. A human organ heart from a pig. Well, it's going to be a lot easier to do that then to try and find heart donors until we're able to genetically grow hearts, which is certainly on the way. And that's going to make a big, big difference. But in the interim, it's certainly interesting. So let me get back to rapamycin. Rapamycin seems to affect uh, a pathway called mTOR. mTOR is sort of like... How would you call it? It's, it's a control piece on cells that um, affects s- speeding up or slowing down. Mm-hmm. mTOR is very high in adolescence and in early life to support growth. And you do not want that in later life. And so the idea was if you take rapamycin... It might slow down mTOR, doesn't turn it off completely, and you might get some anti aging health condition improvements. And people are looking online, there's a Dr. Green in Lyle and has been using it for quite a while, and there's some really uh, good YouTubes on rapamycin. And there's even, I think you can enroll in the trial if you look at uh, rapamycin uh, clinical trial. In the aging field, in the longevity field, one of the uh, two interesting uh, things that I find. One is that as individuals get older their microbiome ages. It's not the same as it was early in life. And we don't quite understand why. And in animal experiments when they've done fecal transplants from an old animal to a young animal, young animal to an old animal the old animal took on many characteristics of the young mouse mouse, and vice versa and I think eventually it's you know once they can put it into a patented pill form and find out what exactly those are um, that's, that's very uh, interesting and so in the meantime what can you do support a healthy microbiome lots of fiber flaxseed chia seed if you're not uh, grains if you don't have a problem with grains and beans and so you know uh, Kamichi and sauerkraut supporting the fertilizer and probiotics that have uh, fiber things like uh, inulin and sea uh, fiber what we call pre-bi- prebiotics which help the growth of healthy probiotics and I tell people experiment we don't know yet I mean you can look online I, I haven't tried them yet so I can't recommend them yet but there are different companies that will do microbiome testing and try and come up with some suggestions for you uh, I know Genova Labs and does a, a complete one that seems to be covered by many insurances you can check that out um, I think they actually reimburse for um medicare which is kind of interesting because a lot of labs don't a lot of nutrition tests are not covered and then you know you can search on i think thorn research thorn research was basically a nutrition company uh, been around a long time and then they uh, partnered with a, uh, a lab testing company and if you go online they're doing the bio-age test and then doing some really interesting home tests it can do. So support that microbiome, which is a big source of uh, age-related conditions. So, so important. I, I, I can't uh, begin to even uh, overestimate how important, uh, even in my, even in my own diet, as I start to add more fiber and when I do fiber I make sure I take some zinc because you don't want to chelate the zinc out with the fiber the phytates can chelate some of the zinc out and even with all the I don't know, 50 supplements I take on a rotating basis and we can go into that in a separate podcast and eventually as I, as I move into video podcasting I'll show you my you know 50 supplements it takes me a while to get to you know get going during the day, and I had, you know, people skeptically look at my program and say, you know, why are you doing that? Well, because there's not much choice. I can do nothing and be into programmed aging, or I can do the best intervention that's at the moment and see what kind of functional response and I've seen functional response I've seen improved strength I've seen improved you know, uh, focus and concentration improved eyesight improved hearing, improved skin must be doing something right but that doesn't mean my exact program is uh, for you know is going to work for someone else takes time and expertise to sort out and personalize a program. You can do general things like vitamin D, uh, certainly vitamin D and and folic acid. And you you know you take methylfolate in case you have the the folic acid gene. And as I've said before, not going into detail, you know um, nutrients that have shown um, at least in animal work, some uh, anti-aging uh, reversals and stabilization and even in some small human studies things like glycine and alpha ketoglutaric acid and uh, urelythin a a compound that's made from pomegranate and uh, glucosamine which has had some interesting work and uh, creatine and i can go on and on but again it needs to be personalized and part of a whole program so I hope you had a great new year and I wish you my listeners a joyful happy healthy new year if you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to be updated uh, please subscribe as I said I'll be uh, on my agenda for the next year will be a blog and some video blogging and some interviews, some video podcasting, and start to interview all these wonderful scientists that I come across in the studies that I read. So, as I end this podcast, I uh, hope you got some valuable information. You can certainly comment. You can certainly email me at Stephen, S T E P H E N, Stephen Nutrition. One word, Stephen Nutrition at gmail.com. And I'd be glad to answer your questions or point you in uh, other information directions. And I want to thank you for listening.